0: Jesus, we ask for your help this morning. Thank you that you speak. We are your servants, and we are listening. We pray that you would open up our eyes, our minds, our hearts, our bodies to your life-giving word. Would you change us and transform us as only you can do. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. John chapter 1. I'm going to read verses 1 to 4, and then just flip over quickly and read uh, John 10, 10. So hear these words from the beloved disciple John. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. He was with God in the beginning. All things were created through him and apart from him not one thing was created that has been created. In him was life and that life was the light of men. And John 10:10 10, 10, a thief comes to only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come so that they may have life and have it in abundance. This is the reading of the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So every fall around this time, we take a few weeks to work through our vision as a church, which is really the vision of Jesus for, um, for his kingdom, what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. And a couple of years ago, this is kind of the final installment of a multi-year uh, vision series where we've been working through our vision statement, kind of if our, if our mission statement, the gospel changes everything, is why we exist as a church, this vision statement answers the question, what does it look like when we're actually living into that as disciples? And so a couple of years ago, we preached through uh, the first part of this, practicing, our statements is practicing the way of Jesus together for the life of the world, right? And it kind of brings together three streams or three kind of big ideas that we feel like are foundational to what it means to be a disciple. Practicing the way of Jesus is spiritual formation or discipleship. Right? We want to be a people that organize our lives around being with Jesus, becoming like Jesus, and doing what Jesus would do if he were here in our bodies because, of course, we believe that he is by his Holy Spirit with us. Um, together, we spent last year looking at what does it mean to be a wholehearted community and to live our life together. The spiritual life is not meant to be lived alone, but in community and deep fellowship and community and quantity with each other. And so we spent the whole year kind of working through what that looks like and teaching skills and competencies and attitudes and values around that. And then this year we want to um, spend our, uh, the majority of the year really looking at in the next couple weeks for sure uh, the backside of that statement for the life of the world. What does it actually look like for Jesus to bring life to the world? That's the missional kind of component of our vision. So let's just let's take a moment. Just humor me. Let's say this together so that I know that you know that we know that we know it. Okay. So we're going to say this together. Practicing the way of Jesus together for the life of the world. Okay, let's do it with some energy this time. Uh, practicing the way of Jesus together for the life of the world. You got it. Great. So what does it mean for Jesus to be for the life of the world and for us as a church to be for the life of the world? What I, All I want to do today is just simply look at Jesus and the flourishing life. And then next week, I want to talk about What it looks like when that flourishing life meets us personally, and we are personally transformed and renewed. And in the last week, we're going to look at of this uh, little mini-series, we're going to look at what does it look like for that to happen on a social and cultural level? What does social and cultural renewal look like when the life of Jesus breaks out in the larger world? Okay, so we're going to start here in John 1 with... Jesus in the flourishing life. Now, let me give you some context in the book of John. John is a a different book. So you have four biographical accounts or eyewitness accounts, narratives of the life of Jesus. And John is written by one of Jesus' closest friends. He calls himself the beloved disciple, John. So this is the inner circle of Jesus' many, many dozens or hundreds of disciples, Peter, James, and John. John, we think, is the one who wrote this account And it's written in the late first century, so probably in the 90s AD. Um, And it's written to communities of disciples that were scattered around the Roman Empire, um, who many of them were not as familiar, not grown up with the customs and the norms and the values and the culture of early Judaism. So there's a lot of explaining, there's a lot of different language and terminology and style that John employs, because he's speaking to a different group than Matthew and Mark, And Luke, what's called the synoptic gospels. John is like like if you watch cable news, there's nobody watches this anymore. But like if you watch ABC, NBC, CBS, CNN, Fox News, whatever, um, uh, like this would be like BBC. It's just a different thing. Like I don't even watch BBC. It's just kind of different. It's it's a little weird Um, because of course it's not it's not what we're used to. John is like the BBC of the gospels. He's writing this as kind of like a missionary textbook to people who are scattered around the Roman Empire to kind of distill down. The essence of what it means to, as he says at the very end of the book, find life in Jesus' name. These first 18 verses here are what's called the prologue, right? Or like an overture. Some of you are really cultured people and you go to symphonies and things. I don't particularly go to symphonies, but like some of you like symphonies. and You know, the overture kind of, it's, it's, a, it's an intro for the rest of what's going to happen uh, throughout the symphony. And that's how this functions. This prologue is essentially seeking to place Jesus' life in ministry, within the larger narrative of God's redemptive work in history, right? So like good narrative, good story, places our story in a larger story and helps give context to our stories. It helps give meaning to our stories and it helps give like direction and purpose to our stories and that's what he's doing. He's putting the, the, our story and the story of Jesus in the larger story of what God has been doing since the very beginning and that's actually how he starts his gospel, right? He starts his gospel in the beginning. It's our origin story, right? Why are we here? Right? What's wrong with the world? What is God doing about what's wrong in the world? Do our lives matter? Do we have any sense of purpose in the world? Right? What, what is God doing about the brokenness in our world and in our lives? In verse four, his simple answer is this. In him, in Jesus, was life. And that life Was the light of men. Now I want to talk about just for a a few minutes what John meant by life, because I don't want to take it for granted. Like right, like there are lots of visions when we talk about life. When we talk about the word that we'll use in our modern world, oftentimes is flourishing. What what is flourishing? What is wholeness? What does life really mean? And I want you to understand what John meant when he said life and what that means for us, because life is a key theme in the book of John. Okay, whereas Matthew, for instance, we we taught on this a few weeks ago, we'll talk a lot about the kingdom of God, drawing near. For John, John's kingdom of God language is life, or he'll add an adjective on it, eternal life. And he mentions that word life forty over forty times in the book of in the Gospel of John. And it's really just kind of a shorthand for salvation. It's what it means to to be saved. This is what it's like to experience salvation or flourishing or wholeness. There's two primary Greek words in the book of John that are used to translate life. There's bios, which if any of you take biology, I you know my son's in biology right now. Bios is a word, biology. Bios just simply means biological life, physiological life. This is just the life of existence or survival, right? So you'll oftentimes hear people say, uh, man, I'm just, I'm just surviving, right? Like, I'm just existing right now, but I know there's more. And we have these seasons, and I think we've been in one of these seasons for the last 18 months, where it's like, man, there has to be more to life than this. That, that longing that we have, even if you're here and you're not a follower of Jesus, there's a sense of restlessness about you where you want more, and you know there's more than just existing. We're, like, we're not meant to just languish and exist, right? We're meant to, to really live. So 1 Timothy 6, Paul says, there is a life that is truly life in comparison and contrast to a life that is not fully life. That's the word here, for zoe, right? Zoe is the word for God's abundant, flourishing quality of life. So when, when Jesus talks about eternal life, don't think of eternal life in terms of linear progression, like years piling on decades, piling on centuries, like life that just goes on forever, right? Because you can live forever apart from God. That's, that's like real hell, right? Life apart from God is the very definition of, of hell, right? But like The life here that he's talking about is not quantitative, just like how many years are you alive. It's qualitative. Brenda Collagen says it like this, eternal life is qualitatively different from mortal human life. It is the life by which God himself lives. It is primarily qualitative, not qualitative, quantitative. So here's the first thing I want you to, to see about this. When he says, in him was life, Jesus, this sounds so simple, and yet it's profound. Jesus is life, and life is Jesus. If we want to know what real life is, in any conversation about life or flourishing, we have to start with Jesus. And if we want to know what Jesus is about, we have to start by talking about life. John links Jesus and life together throughout the book. If you want to know what life is, look at Jesus. If you want to know what Jesus is about, look at life. Jesus, uh, some of you guys like Food Network. I don't know, my, my kids love Kids Baking Championship, uh, all these British baking shows. Um, like, they're always talking about, and, and I didn't know this, I'm from Kentucky, right? So I'm like from a working class neighborhood. There's a word in food where they talk about elevating food, right? Like, I didn't realize this until I'm into Broad Ripple is all about elevating everything, um, like I, I, grew up going to like Applebee's and you know, O'Charlie's and places like, you know, I mean, Taco Bell, McDonald's, that was like a, a nice night out might've been like Pizza Hut or what they call Kingfish in Louisville, right? Like none, none of you have ever heard of Kingfish, but, uh, it's basically just buffet style, you know, like Ryan's Steakhouse with the glass that covers like the sneeze guard. Okay. That was going, that was, Adam knows what I'm talking about. That was, that was elevated, right? For us. Now some of you are like, that is elevated. What are you talking about? Um, But, like, you elevate something. Like, when you take something, like, ordinary and you raise it up to the next level, you you say, "I'm I'm gonna take this to another level and blow your mind. That's the kind of life that is on offer with Christianity, with Jesus. See, at its core, Christianity is not about offering another religion. God knows we don't need any more religion. Jesus is offering a vision of a flourishing life. Let me just define life for you really simply according to Jesus. Life is the fullness, the way that Jesus presents it. Life is the fullness of God's presence, revealed in Jesus, that restores flourishing in the world. Life, eternal life, is the fullness of God's presence, revealed in Jesus, that restores flourishing in the world. Now, in order to unpack this a little bit more fully, John points us back to the beginning of creation. Lest we miss what he's talking about here or we project our own understanding of what life is or what flourishing is, John says if you really want to understand life, if you really want to understand Zoe, you've got to go back to the beginning and you've got to understand the larger story that predates Jesus. So so when Jesus shows up and says, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life, that would have meant something very different to them than it might mean to us today. And especially if you're here and you're a person that's like, I don't equate like Christianity with life. Christianity to me is abusive, it's corrupted. All I've experienced with Christianity is the opposite of life. Like I am sympathetic and I, I understand we walk into this place with wounds but we can't fill the baby out with the bathwater because we've had bad experiences. There is something that Jesus was doing here that, yes, can be distorted. Yes, gets corrupted when it's put into human hands, but the essence of it is a beautiful story. And I just wanted to spend a minute telling you that story because I don't think we all know the story. See, oftentimes it's easy for us, at least in the church tradition where I became a Christian, to start the, so- the story at sin, This this world is broken, it's sinful, it's messed up. And we, we boot off of that instead of going back and seeing God's original design for life and flourishing in the world. And that makes all the difference in the world in how you experience Jesus and how you think about the church and how you think about your own life. This story, John says, if you go back to the beginning, starts with the word, the logos, the organizing principle of life itself, ultimate reality. God. So, I want to tell this just like I was telling a story. Chapter one, or maybe this, this actually would be prologue or preface. There was life in the beginning, and that life was God Himself. Before any matter is created, before anything in the physical universe exists, there is life in God. There is a life within God. He says, In the beginning was the Word. That's shorthand for Jesus. The Word was with God, the Word was God. All things, he was with God in the beginning. All things were created through him and apart from him. Not one thing was created that has been created. The prologue of the story is that there was life within God. There was this energy, there was this this reality of eternal life within God himself, Uh, some theologians call it the dance of the Trinity, right? Father, Son, and Holy Spirit existing. This is the first missional community, right? Like God, if you want to put it in our language, this is the first community group. This is the first small group is God himself existing eternally as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, existing in this community of mutual, reciprocal relationship and love and self-giving and knowledge and service. I mean, think about that. God was life, and in Him was life, pulsating in this dance of the Trinity, a giving and a receiving of love, and knowledge, and service. Now, why is that important that we understand that? Because it's not often, again, how we think about the origin of human life, right? Like, this origin story in Genesis is given against the backdrop of all kinds of ancient Mesopotamian narratives of violence, and injustice, and cruelty, and hatred, like that's how the world started. It started with a fight. Genesis says, no. John says, in the beginning, there was God. There was life. There was love. There was flourishing. C.S. Lewis talked about this a lot. He said, in Christianity, God is not an impersonal thing or a static thing. He's not even just one person, but a dynamic, pulsating activity, a life, a drama, almost, if you will not think me irreverent, a kind of dance. What does it all matter? It matters more than anything else in the world for the whole dance or drama or pattern of this three-person life is to be played out in each one of us. They are the great fountain of energy and beauty spurting up at the very center of reality. And there is no other way to the happiness for which we have been made. Isn't that cool to think about? Reality started with life. That's what you were made for. That's what you long for. It's what you ache for when you cry out, this is the way the world ought to be. This is the way the world should be. I hate this. What you're saying is because I long for this. What's cool is the next chapter of the story, out of that life of God himself, out of that dance, God simply widens the circle of divine love and creates the world. Out of the overflow of his own fullness of life, God's dance widens, to include creation. He creates a world pulsating with abundant flourishing. God's dance goes out and it invites in. God isn't standing over here. Now, I'm gonna just confess something to you guys. Um, I love weddings. I love all, I, I do lots of weddings. just did one a couple weeks ago. Um, I love doing all of it. I love weddings all the way up until the last few hours of the wedding. You know why? Because the last few hours of the wedding, the music starts, and something like the electric slide will come on, and there's this small group of, like, really annoying, energetic, like, dancy people, and they just start getting out there, and like, come on, everybody, and that's Adam Ringo, one of our elders, that's him, he's, he is this guy, and he just starts to dance, and the circle widens, and then all of a sudden, I find myself, my my rhythm is offbeat, like, that is my rhythm, offbeat, whatever the beat is, I'm the opposite of that, I'm the anti-beat, I hate dancing, I am too, like, To be a dancer, you have to kind of not be self-conscious, right? Like, so that's why God is such a good dancer because God is like so self-forgetful; He doesn't care, right? Like, but like I am not. I am self-conscious. I'm in my head, not in my body. I'm weird. I'm awkward dancing. I don't like to dance, and so people are like, "Come on!" And I'm like, "I I gotta go." You know, my kids are waiting. On my dog just threw up. I mean, I, I I gotta get out of here. So I'm trying to melt into the background to avoid dancing. Now there is one exception to that rule the only time i will dance the only time i'll dance is if my wife and my daughters come to me and they say please dance with us okay and like that i'm hesitant but like when my daughters were little they loved to go to weddings they loved to dance and so they would get out there and they'd be dancing and they're calling to me daddy come on daddy come dance with me and so of course like be, i cannot be a jerk at that moment i'm like okay and so i get out there and i try to move as little as possible you know what I mean? I'm like, uh, I'm like uh, that, that movie uh, Hitch, you know what I mean? I'm, I'm just like, I'm staying in my zone. I'm just kind of not moving, just facilitate them swinging around and them doing their thing. Okay, even that was awkward what I just did. That's, my, that's me dancing. You just got to feel for it. And please don't, don't I, now I feel self-conscious. You're going to be staring at me in worship when I'm like swaying and moving off beat. I felt already self-conscious uh, earlier. That's exactly what's happening in the dance of creation. God is dancing, and he's inviting creation into this dance. Come, experience my love. Come, experience life. The circle of God widens to include creation. There's fullness of life in all dimensions and domains of existence, right? Like, I want to just list some of these out. There's fullness of life with God. Like, Adam and Eve experience intimacy with God. They experience communion with God. They are vulnerable with God. I mean, the Bible says before Genesis 3, they're naked and not ashamed, right? Like, they're physically naked. They're spiritually naked. They're emotionally naked. Like, we all long to be free of shame, to be free of guilt or fear or self-consciousness. And there they are with God, walking in perfect love, God knowing them all the way to the bottom loving them all the way to the bottom without shame. There's fullness of life with God. There's fullness of life within ourselves. We are healthy. They are healthy, Adam and Eve, physically, emotionally, psychologically. There's dignity and value and worth. They're created in the image of God, right? They're not created slaves. They're created free men and women in the image of God. They have wholeness and they have a hopefulness about their future. There's life with each other, right? With Adam and Eve within them, there's peace between them, there's, there's security, there's no violence, no domestic abuse, no war, no breaking down of our relationships, no racism, no classism, no like all the things we hate, like it's not there. It is a just society. There's unity within diversity. There's life even with the natural world, right? Like the natural world is, falls under the order of God. There's a rhythmic quality. Let there be light, let there be day, Let this happen, right? Like God speaks and creation responds to his word. There's this poetry and symmetry to what's happening in nature. There's economic flourishing. There's not a scarcity of resources to fight over. There's sustainability. There's beauty, unimaginable. There's culture making, right? Adam and Eve are told to go out of the garden and take the blessings of Eden and to have dominion, to co-rule and reign with God and go out and build civilization, build culture. We're going to talk about that in two weeks. And here's what I just want you to see about creation. Jesus is at the center of all of it. Jesus isn't standing, you know, around the edges like the awkward single guy who can't dance or the awkward married guy who can't dance, for that matter. He's right in the middle of it. Notice what John says. All things were created through him. And apart from him, not one thing was created it has been created. Colossians says he's before all things, and by him all things hold together. In other words, if Jesus withdrew his presence for just one moment, the universe would spin out and would fracture and fall apart. To put it back in our language of the wedding, Jesus is the host. Jesus is the caterer. Jesus is the one who goes and secures the venue. He's the DJ and He's the bridegroom. Jesus is life, and life is Jesus in all dimensions, all the things we long for, life with God, life with each other, life within ourselves, and life with the world. This is what it means to flourish in the way that John is talking about. In him is that kind of life, that elevated life that we long for. We know that this story doesn't end there, right? There's the fall, Genesis chapter 3. Seduced by the anti-life serpent who comes to kill and to steal and to destroy. The first humans try to find life apart from God. They try to find life in themselves. They Try to find life in food. Try to find life in the abundance of things and created things rather than the creator. You see, this is the temptation for both religion and secularism, really ever since Genesis chapter three, is to pursue progress apart from the presence of God. Progress without presence always leads to death. They fall under the evil power and bondage of sin. It perverts God's good creation, right? It alienates us from one another, from God, from the created world. It fractures, it kills this life. But there's a promise, right? The promise of redemption In the next chapter of the story. There's a promise that one day a Messiah who's gonna come, who himself is filled with the presence of God, right? He's filled with the presence of God. He's gonna come and he's going to restore God's good world. He's going to renew, he's going to press start on the thing that got paused when sin entered the world. He's going to reconcile people to God and to one another. The best summary of that, I think, in the Bible, one of my favorites, and one we're going to talk about a lot this year, talk about in two weeks in more depth, is in Isaiah 61. In Isaiah 61, the prophet Isaiah is is preaching to a people that are experiencing exile because of their sin, because of their idolatry. They experience and, and are per- perpetrators of injustice in the world, and they're exiled from the presence of God. The presence of God leaves the people, and they're sent into exile in a far away land. And Isaiah has this good news to share with them that it's not always going to be this way. That judgment precedes renewal, and that God's not forgotten about His people. And here's what He says. This is so powerful. Isaiah 61, the Spirit of the Lord God is on me because the Lord has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, freedom to the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of our God's vengeance, to comfort all who mourn, to provide for those who mourn in Zion, to give them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, festive oil instead of mourning and splendid clothes instead of despair. They will be called righteous trees planted by the Lord to glorify Him. And I left this off the slides, but one of my favorite parts, uh, verse 4 and 5. They will rebuild the ancient ruins. They will restore the former devastations. They will renew the ruined cities, the devastations of many generations. Strangers will stand and feed your flocks. Foreigners, that word can be translated sojourners, immigrants, refugees, We'll stand and feed your flocks. Foreigners will be your plowmen and vine dressers. See, what we have here is a vision of a Messiah who comes to bring renewal to the world, who comes to bring life. The life that God promised in Genesis chapter 1. He brings that life in himself. Notice all the dimensions of life. Personal renewal, right? You will, you will become righteous. You will become holy as God himself is holy. You will become whole as God himself is whole. You will, you will experience the righteousness of God in your bodies. Your shame, he says, will be healed. Your bodies will be, your broken bodies will be healed. Your broken hearts will be healed. Where there is ashes and death and devastation, there will now be oil and blessing and forgiveness and reconciliation to God. Life with God Becomes a thing again. There's social renewal, right? It doesn't just stop with us and our personal relationship with God. There's jubilee. This is all Isaiah 61 is all Leviticus 25 language. The idea of jubilee was every seven Sabbaths, every seven sevens, every 50 years. There was a generational economic reset where all debts would be forgiven, all land would go back to their owners. And it was a reset, right? Because we know the poor in Deuteronomy, it says they're always with us, but in God's economy, it shouldn't be the same poor. Generational poverty shouldn't be a thing. We know that Jubilee was actually never practiced as far as we know. And many scholars believe it's one of the reasons why Israel was sent into exile because they ignored God's command. But there's economic flourishing. Jubilee comes, the year of the Lord's favor comes to the poor. Good news is preached, not just to the spiritually poor, but the the material poor. There's racial reconciliation and justice, right? Refugees, immigrants, those who wouldn't normally mix it up are now brought together, co-ruling and co-reigning together in God's new earth. There's cultural renewal too, right? The cities are rebuilt, right? The devastation, like cities, he's talking here about Devastation that lasts many generations, right? We have generational issues that we can't solve, we can't seem to fix, we can't seem to get the right policies, can't get to seem to get the right leaders, and so we continue to languish generation after generation. And he says Jesus has come to make culture new again, to rebuild cities, to step into those gaps and begin to repair what's been broken. We know, of course, that the Bible begins in a garden, but do you know that it ends in a city? Revelation chapter 21. So all of that like prepares the way. So that when Jesus shows up in John 1 and he says, In him is life, he's saying, That life, that's what Jesus came to bring. That's who Jesus is. John uses this word life as a stand-in, saying, Jesus is the fulfillment of all those longings. He is the Messiah who's gonna come and restore the kingdom of God on earth. And that's why Jesus, throughout his ministry, is always saying, things about being the life. I am the resurrection life, he says. I am the bread of life who comes down from heaven. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. I am the living water, he says. He is the life, and life is him. And he also embodies this life in his own life. He shows us what flourishing looks like. What, is it, what, would it be, what would it look like for a perfect human being to walk the earth and to live out Genesis chapter 1? Created in the image of God, embodying and extending the blessings of the garden to the world. Look at the life of Jesus. In his life, the way he serves, the way he loves, the way he forgives, the way he heals, The miracles he performs, the supernatural things that he does to restore grace to nature. It's all about life. In his death on the cross, he stands... With our sin on his shoulders, he bears our sin in our place for our sins. And not only our sin, but the sin that infects the totality of creation in the world, nature itself, social structures, all of that sin falls on Jesus. And he dies in our place for our sins, breaking the power of evil in the world. Jesus, and then he raises from the dead. And in doing that, Jesus is giving us this pattern and this power for a flourishing life. So all of that, like, I know that's maybe just like a, a heavy, like, okay, that's a big story. And then one day, the end of the story, the last chapter, is restoration, right? Like, what, one day, Jesus comes back, and he makes all things new again, forever. That's the story of life. Now, let me just give some application points as we close, meaning to close. First thing, we must have a vision of life that is as rich and abundant as, the one that, as Jesus is. We must have a vision of life that is as rich and abundant as Jesus himself was and is and will be. And I say that because there's so many competing visions of life and flourishing, right? Oftentimes in our day, we don't always have a positive vision. We kind of have more like a negative or anti-vision, like I'm against this or I don't like this or I hate this. We don't often have a positive vision, but I think in those negatives, we begin to hear some of the positives and think, okay, if it's not this, then it's this. And there's so many competing voices out there saying, this is life, this is flourishing, follow this path, follow these 12 steps, do these things, and you will find life. And here's the problem. There's there's usually a kernel of truth in those voices pointing us to life, but oftentimes they are incomplete, they are reductionistic, and they are most oftentimes in our world in the West, in America, humanistic. They are not birthed in life with God. It is progress without the presence of God. It is a seeking of renewal. And you'll even hear the language, like in our culture, for people who are amazingly not Christian, hate the church, they use revivalistic language. They use and borrow categories from the image of God and dignity and value and worth and power and authority, all these words that are God words. And what they want is revival and renewal without the presence of God. God. What they'll do is oftentimes take a part of the creation story. They'll isolate, or they'll take a part of the, the sin the, the sin and the fall, and they'll isolate that, and they'll say, this is what's wrong with the world. And it's amazing, like all these ideologies, they have like a gospel arc to them. They have like a, a, a narrative arc to them. This is what we were created for. This is what's wrong with the world. This is what redemption looks like, and here's restoration. You can see that in almost any Ideology. The problem is some of them don't go back far enough and start with creation. They start with sin and the fall. So the Greco-Romans, Aristotle and Plato and Socrates, they would say the problem with the world is our bodies. The material world is bad. They were dualists. Matter is bad. The body is bad. Liberation is found in escaping and kind of tearing off the husk of your body and your soul being free to connect with this abstract ideal called the good and the be- and the, tr- the, 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 the good and the true and the beautiful. You merge in this impersonal cosmic force. Enlightenment thinkers located evil in religion, right? Marx, excuse me, Nietzsche and Hume and modern day guys like Stephen Pinker uh, and Richard Dawkins and what they say is religion is evil and what we need to do is to free ourselves from the structures of religion and tradition and just kind of find our own way and pursue autonomy and self-expression. Nobody can tell us what to do. God doesn't know what's right. The church doesn't know what's right. We need to figure out this on our own. What we need is freedom and liberation for freedom and liberation's sake. Marx said the problem was money, right? And, and who owns the means of production? Jordan Peterson says the problem is feminism in the way that it's emasculating men. The secular justice movement looks out at the world and says the problem is powers, right? It's powers that are embedded in legal uh, and institutional realities, and we need to tear those down. Religious nationalism finds them in American history. What's wrong is we've gotten away from our our narrative as a country, from what makes us American, and so salvation's gonna come by recapturing some nostalgic vision of blood and flag and history and culture and norms. Oftentimes evangelicals will do this as well. And we'll say, you know, what's wrong in the world is people's hearts are evil, which is true. And salvation comes by just changing hearts and minds. You hear this, right? Changing hearts and minds and then sometimes also capturing political institutions. And if we just do that then we'll change the world. How's that working out for us? We need a vision of life that is as robust as Jesus is. Life is life with God and life with each other and life with creation, and life within ourselves. We must hold those things together, right? If we only have life with God, but it doesn't touch the systems and structures in our world, it's not life for a lot of people. If all we do is reform systems and structures, but we don't have the presence and the power of God, we know that doesn't go so hot either, right? We need them all together, working in concert if we're going to see flourishing happen. Al Walters, in his excellent book, Creation Regained, which I would encourage you to read. It's like 100 pages. Really, really great work. He says this. It is quite striking that virtually all the basic words describing salvation in the Bible imply a return to an originally good state or situation. The obvious implication is that the new humanity, that's the church, full of God's spirit, the presence of God living in his people, is called to promote renewal in every department of creation. If Christ is the reconciler of all things, And if we've been entrusted the ministry of reconciliation on on his behalf, then we have a redemption task wherever our vocation places us in the world. There's no sacred, secular divide, he's saying. No invisible dividing line within creation limits the applicability of such basic biblical concepts as reconciliation, redemption, salvation, sanctification, renewal, the kingdom of God, and so on. In the name of Christ, distortion must be opposed everywhere, in the kitchen and the bedroom, in city councils and corporate boardrooms, on the stage and on the air, in the classroom and in the workshop. Everywhere creation calls for the honoring of God's standards. Everywhere humanity's sinfulness disrupts and deforms. Everywhere Christ's victory is pregnant with the defeat of sin and the recovery of creation. Redemption and renewal have to be as big as creation is. And we have to have that kind of vision for life. Otherwise, we will reduce the mission of God down to something that can be domesticated, something we can control, something that's comfortable for us. And we miss all these dimensions where God wants to bring flourishing to our neighbors, our spouses, our children, our institutions, our government. As Abraham Kuyper famously said, there's not an inch of creation over which God doesn't declare mine. Second thing, and this is more just about our expectations. So one is a vision. This is kind of more expectation. Our missional presence in the world has to begin by acknowledging God's presence is already with the world in Jesus. We don't make renewal happen. We cannot bring it in our power. Every time we try to bring it, With human power, human ingenuity, human wisdom, we always mess it up, right? The good news is God is already doing this work in the world. We don't have to make it happen. We don't have to walk around anxious or defensive or fearful or reactive or just worried. Like, we can enter in with confidence, because all we have to do, like Jesus has already come into the world. He's been born into the world. The life is here. It is among us. It is in us. It's coming through us. God is already at work. He is the first cause of mission. We just simply discern where is God at work and how can I join him? It's that simple. Where is God at work and how can I participate with him and what he's doing in the world? Like I wanna encourage you this week. Just like, would you just look at your life Look around you. Where is God at work? Where is God's spirit renewing? It might come to you in surprising places. We see it breaking out in all kinds of surprising places in the book of John. Cultures and peoples and neighborhoods that nobody would have expected the kingdom of God to show up in. Look around your life. Take an audit. Where is God working? How can I just step into that and join him? Richard the Lotus says this, any notion of mission in this world must confess that God moves first. Long before we act, God has already acted. Long before we speak, God has already spoken. Long before we arrive, God has already been present. What's needed is for Christ followers to discern God's presence rather than his absence. And I say this because for some of us, we look out into the world and we see chaos. See injustice. We see things that frighten us. And the immediate assumption is well, God must not be there. God's absent. God must be away getting a ham sandwich. He must be taking a lunch break for like the last 2,000 years. (laughs) But what if you discerned his presence? What if you said, no, his spirit hovers over this area of my life, over my neighborhood, over my workplace, over my spouse, over my children, as he hovered over the waters of creation, taking chaos and bringing flourishing? What if that was our assumption? What if that was our just basic disposition is we have nothing to fear because God is here and he's for the world? Because that's what this whole passage is about, right? Jesus came to bring life and he came to bring life for the world. Despite the evil in the world, despite all of the injustice and the idolatry, God, John says, becomes flesh. You know what a good modern translation of that? He he moves into the neighborhood and he builds a home. He brings his home to the neighborhood. The incarnation of Jesus is the ultimate yes of God to this world. God doesn't hate this world, God isn't against this world. God is for. For, like one preposition changes everything. For the world and Jesus. The world and and the word cosmos in the book of John just is kind of a stand-in for like God's sin-infected creation, right? Like God's good creation distorted and aimed away from God, directionally pushed away away from God that God came to reclaim for himself. The world means people, the world also means groups of people. It also means structures and systems. John 3.16, right, like the most basic verse. For God so loved the world. He's for the world. That he gave his only son. I'm going to do this my own way. Uh, that whoever, whoever, whosoever believeth in him, this is old King James, should not perish but have everlasting life. Now, don't stop there because some people stop at 16 and we forget 17. What does 17 say? For God did not send his son into the world that he might condemn the world, but that, through, that the world through him might be saved. So that means that our missional posture must be framed by being for the world like Jesus was for the world. There's three basic missional postures that a Christian can take in the world. And you may have seen these play out in different ways. One is to be against the world. I grew up in a church like this. To be against the world, right? The world is evil, it's bad, it's dark. Secularism is on the rise. The world's about to come to an end. Let's be afraid. Let's freak out, you know, like, um, and, and it leads to a posture of negation, right? I am against whatever the world is for. This is like the moment that we live in, like this negative polarization, this negative, it's like whatever you're for, if you're not on my team, I'm against we know what, what Christians oftentimes are against, but we don't often know what they're for. Easy to be against when you see brokenness in the world, right? Against the world of the world, right? We can, we can if, if the sin of one generation is they are colonizing the world, to use our language, the sin of a younger generation, maybe in reaction to that, could be the equal and opposite error, to be colonized by the world, to assimilate to the world in an effort to because we're so afraid of inauthenticity, hypocrisy, imperialism, irrelevance, we can become of the world, worldly, in our thinking, in our feeling, in our acting. Jesus says, "Before the world. For the world is this paradox, right? Like, Jesus affirms dignity, He affirms these longings for flourishing. Jesus comes and he says, yes, what you long for, like seek that, but don't seek it where you seek it. Don't seek it without the presence of God. This world was created good. I've come to restore this world. He affirms that and he challenges. He says, repent and believe. Reorganize your life. Turn away from trying to find life in anything else. It's this weird combination of like being for and kind of challenging, affirming and challenging. That's the life of Jesus. And we have to be able to do both. Some of us are really good at affirmation, not so much at challenge. Some of us like, make a living off of challenging, not so great at affirmation. We need both. That's what it means to be for the world. And that's gotta be foundational. So this is where we find ourselves right now. We find ourselves with an opportunity with an opportunity to bring life like Jesus and in Jesus and for Jesus and with Jesus into the world. That's why you were created. That's why you've been recreated in Christ. Church, this is our mission to be for the world, to bring the life of God, the presence of God into the world through the power of God's Spirit. But if we're gonna do that, we must be experiencing and encountering that renewing presence in our own lives. We need to be renewed. This is the story of Israel, right? They needed to be renewed as they were seeking to bring renewal to the world. We have an opportunity right now. If we will see it as an opportunity. Like how, how else will life come into the world unless we are being transformed and bringing the transforming presence of God into the world? If we look out on the world and we get afraid or we get defensive and we just critique or we try to copy the world or we just consume, we're going to miss it. If we're freaking out because everybody's freaking out right now and we carry that anxiety with us, we see, man, like the world is over. No, it's not. Do you know the story of history is one of decline and renewal? As Mark Sayers says, I hope you're reading this book along with us, he says the history of the world is like a tide in terms of renewal. The tide goes out. God does a work in secret, in the hidden places, in the night, underground, and it seems like all hope is lost. The tide's way out there. But then the tide comes roaring back in with strength and power and something that can't be taken away because it's been internalized. That's the work that the Spirit of God doing in our world right now for those who have eyes to see and ears to hear. He is a renewing spirit who breathes new life into his people, and that is what we need. We need the spirit of God to come to breathe fresh life into our lungs, to lead us to a place of holy discontent, dissatisfaction, not just with the world, but with the state of our own souls, the state of our own hearts. We need to repent and to turn away from progress without the presence of God. And as we return to the presence of God and we find fullness of life, we then take, as one person famously said, we take bread from one beggar and we offer it up to other beggars. We say this is life. Let's pray. Father, we pray for your life to inhabit us as your church. Would you breathe a fresh wave and wind into our souls. God, we feel the signs of decline, stagnation, death, alienation, fracturing all around us and within us. And God, we just cry out. We need you. We need you to be life for us. We need to experience the abundant life. We need to experience the transforming presence and power of God in Jesus Christ. Your life lived for us, your death forgiving us and reconciling us to yourself and to one another and your resurrection power new world power coming into us and just sparking a fresh renewal. And so we cry out for that. We long for that. Would you bring it? Your kingdom come. God, your will be done in our lives as it is in heaven. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.